0: Hey everyone, it is then again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. So glad you could join us. We are here with David French. This is going to be the second part of our exploration of games and gaming as an educational tool. We use that a lot here at the History Center. And just to, to fill all of you in from last week, if you don't remember it, or if you didn't get a chance to hear it, go back and listen to it after this one. But We were talking with David because he's worked at the History Center. He is an avid gamer and war gamer, and we had talked about the development of war games through history, how they had sort of developed into a pastime for people. But but now today, what I want to do with that broad overview, I kind of want to narrow it down and talk to David about how he specifically was able to, taking his knowledge of war games and, and how they work began to develop for us specific games to teach history and not just military history. Right, David? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So it, it, uh, if you listen to the last episode, we talked a lot about war games, but I think that's mostly just sort of the set up how we arrived at the games that we did at the history center, which are broad and, and not necessarily, you know, military conflict related. So Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, the, the first, I think the first couple of games you built, David, were were actually versions of war games. They were We were talking mm-hmm. about the Battle of Hastings, as we always do. Mm-hmm. And another battle that most people had never heard of, which is the Battle of Mabila, where the explorer DeSoto came upon a Native American tribe that was bent on his destruction for invading their territory. So those were war games, <laughs> but then you developed a couple of more after that that moved away from that specific genre. That's right. And in fact, in, in the prior
1: episode, so I, I mentioned Matt Fritz, who is a middle school teacher, and his website, juniorgeneral.org. And his work did inspire those two first games very heavily that I designed for the History Center. It was the Battle of Mabila, uh, as you said, which was Conquistadors, Hernando de Soto, and then the Battle of Hastings game, both battle games that focused on specific events. But the goal there was to try to put whoever was playing the game, in this case, You know, young people visiting the History Center to put them in the shoes of the battle's participants. And both games were different and I think developments of each other. The Mabila game came first. Both the Mabila and the Hastings games were very closely related to the work of Matt Fritz, who was that middle school teacher I mentioned in the prior episode, who teaches uh, military history to middle school students through games. But they were both somewhat finer development in that they both used miniatures games in the sense that each of the players, you know, commanded a army of paper soldiers, which is in fact what we use for those, but they did have a sort of board game element in that we used a hexagonal or a board divided into hexagons where the units, and this is an old, you know, wargaming concept, but the terrain is divided into hexagons and uh, because hexagons interlink very nicely so you can divide a board completely and each hexagon has six spaces that one can move from into an adjoining hexagon and that allowed for some terrain variety but also sped up play it was very easy for people who had never played a war game before to understand that because they'd probably played board games that had defined movements like that before And so it was, it was very natural for people to sit down and play these, you know, sort of hybrid miniatures games as if they were playing a board game. There were recognizable elements there. So I think those were both very successful, but oddly enough, they're not my favorite thing. They're not what I deem to be the most successful thing that we developed at the History Center. Well, Heavens,
0: that, that, what do you consider the, the best thing that, that you developed at the History Center? What yeah, were your favorites? Um, my, probably,
1: and this is moving away from the war games, I think the things that were the best teaching tools were actually not the war games per se. War games are really good because you can talk about the topic to start with, and you can explain what happened in history, then you can say to the audience now, you know, or, or the participants now, you get to try to, you know, experience this battle that we've just talked about. But I think it hits home perhaps even more in a non-military sense, even when it's just about uh, people's lives. And some of the favorite, my, my personal, I think they were the educational and and productive games that we worked on was the game about the Irish potato famine that we did. That was, we called it Black 47, uh, referring to the year 1847, which was a particularly bad year for the potato famine in Ireland. And then the deerskin trade game, similar to a war game. They, you know, we we could explain the topic and then say, okay, now we'll put you in, let you have a chance to experience this thing that we've just talked about. But not being war games, I think people identified with them um, on a different level, perhaps a more personal level and I think that that helped them really get and understand a, a valuable historical lesson from those games
0: right and we had I think we had mentioned previously or we had said it in a conversation at some point that up until you know say 2000 most history games were war games but certain folks like yourself have seen that shifting the dynamic to teach history with games it gets kids especially in and, and we i guess we should state that fact we haven't actually come out and said that yet we're really aiming these at kids not mm-hmm. adults you know these, these are these are aimed at you know late elementary and middle school but everyone everyone can play them and have fun absolutely of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh but teaching history with games now it, it engages folks And it helps them, it can help them understand the choices that people from the past had to face, some of the challenges that they faced. But here's, and here's what I want to really delve into. Hopefully, hopefully you can remember when you were developing these games. Mm -hmm. Um, There are are a lot of concerns and dynamics that you have to consider building a good history game. And that's one of the Mm -hmm. things I think you're so good at. You know, you don't just sit down and say, you know, this is the potato famine, here's a row of squares you're going to spin a spinner and try to make it to the end and not starve the end that's not what you do right (laughs) you pull you you have to pull in first the game has to be playable pretty quickly explained Mm -hmm. very quickly Mm -hmm. right well you know uh so so yeah tell us how you the things you have to take into account when you're designing that kind of game absolutely so uh i'll steal
1: this from and this is where i learned it from a war game designer who is still around and designing games, a guy named Sam Mustafa. He talks about uh, in his own game design uh, chats that he always starts with a brief. He writes down, you know, what is he trying to show or have the player experience in a game? And I think oftentimes when people think about games, they think of them about their constituent parts. So You know, rolling dice does this or playing a card does that. But rather than thinking of the parts, don't start there. Start with a brief. You know, write down, this is the shoes that I want to put the player in, so to speak. Okay, now what are the elements of those shoes? What are the parts that that make that experience? Then what elements, what game elements, what parts, uh, tools, game tools, can we use to mimic those experiences? So I would say start, start high and work your way down. Part of it I think is too, is experiencing, uh, having enough experience, just playing different games, to see how different mechanics have worked for other games and how they may work in your game. I mean, I, I'm uh, absolutely unashamedly a stealer of other people's ideas. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, you are um, a historian after all. Yeah, exa- Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think any any games designer who says that they're not, I think, is lying. I, I really do. But because, but that's just that's the nature of that. You see, okay, I, I that's an interesting mechanic. I'm I see in this game. I'm kind of going to make a mental note of that, and then there might come a t- time when I can revisit that mechanic uh, and apply it in a, in a slightly different way or with other mechanics to, to build an experience that is uniquely tailored to model, you know, a certain thing, such as experiencing the I- Irish Potato Famine. That one used a card system where the player was meant to have restricted decisions the the famine itself was controlled by card decks. I believe we modeled five years of the famine, and so there were five decks, each with a dis- different distribution of events in the decks and um, they weren't terribly complicated or anything, but it was just a sort of a different distribution of the same thing to model the the, the ebb and flow of, of the famine and the players also had to balance this against their rent prices and which would continue to go up. And that was in competition with, you know, their resources that they were trying to deal with the famine and survive the famine with. And so they had to make these decisions about whether or not, you know, am I going to try to stay in Ireland? Am I going to immigrate to the United States? You know, what am I going to do? And in that sense, It was a game in that there were gameable decisions to make, but it was also somewhat of a simulation in that the players don't necessarily know when they sit down to play what the distribution of the decks are. So they don't really know what's coming, just like people in real life don't know what's coming. And so they, they've got to try to make these decisions knowing that, hmm, is it, maybe it'll get better, maybe it'll get worse, maybe rent'll go up, maybe, you know, the, these, these kinds of decisions. So it was, the, the idea was to put someone in those those shoes, so to speak. And then, you know, whenever they, they then learn a lesson, a history lesson about the potato famine, or, you know, see it on the History Channel or Discovery Channel or whatever, they can recollect that sort of visceral, you know, I felt this way and maybe that's a hint and i really mean a hint but maybe that's a hint of what it was like then so that's the teachable moment
0: right and and you know doing a doing a game like you say about the potato famine you want them to learn a certain thing so so to what extent this I'm, I'm using simplistic terms. You'll have to forgive me. To what extent, when you design a history game, is the fix in? I mean, you know, how many? Mm-hmm. You don't want everyone to go away. We all survived the famine. They're not, they're not going to learn anything. So, so to to what extent does the fix need to be in? And to what extent do does there have to be have to be occasionally a non-historic out? I guess is the is the is what I'm trying to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So uh, pretty much always there has to be I think some grounding in the events that occur. And what I mean by that is the chances of of everyone having a great time playing the Irish potato famine game and coming through with it like there was no famine at all. is very unlikely. It has to be, you know, the weight of whatever event you're trying to model has to definitely be present and, and be an overbearing presence. To compare, and, and it's funny you use the word uh, the fix because there was definitely a fix in one of my other favorite games which was the Deerskin Trade game. That one required a umpire, so to speak, or, or a moderator, uh, someone who understood the game and understood the history a little bit to be the the, the person to run that game. But that person played the deerskin trading company, the European trading company that had an interest with trading with Native Americans in the 1700s, uh, particularly in the American Southeast, deerskins for finished goods. And the players, the who each played a Native American tribe, had to be uh, controlled, so to speak, by this umpire. What I mean is, the the umpire playing the the British trading company would have to witness and say, oh, okay, you know, this person is getting a lot of guns and ammunition. That was that was something that the the, the factoring company could trade for deerskins. So maybe I'm going to make the specific choice to, you know, open-endedly say, hey, I see you have a lot of guns and ammunition. Maybe you could attack this other Native American. Player and I could, you know, give you a better deal or, you know, that the, or perhaps, Ooh, you've got a lot of guns and ammunition. I'm concerned that you might overthrow my factoring company and, and make war on, on me, the, the Europeans. Maybe I won't trade so much with you. Maybe I'll trade with someone who's uh, perhaps a little safer to trade with. So the umpire had to kind of um, be the house so to speak, in, in, a, in a Las Vegas card game to manage the other players against each other in a way that was both beneficial to the house, but also modeled the history very well because, well, that, that's... That, was, <laughs> the the trade. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> was the history. Yeah, that was the history, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm particularly happy with both of those games. They, they stick out, the, the potato famine game, but also the deerskin trade game. Oh, and the train game. That's I think that's...
0: Oh, yeah. Worth. I had almost forgotten about that one.
1: Yep, the train game. That was worth... And in fact, I think now there's a, a semi-permanent version of that in the galleries of the train game. That,
0: yes, right? that is correct. Yes, that turned... Well, uh, we're still in the COVID times as we, we record this, so we've had to disable all of our hands-on interactives. But yes, there is a 3D hands-on version of that in the galleries.
1: Yeah, so that was a, a switching game or perhaps maybe a car order game, I'm not totally sure what to call it, but you were put in the position and we, this was at a family day where, and we used electric model trains, but you had to maneuver the train across the various tracks and switches in order to put the train cars in the correct order. And that's a very real activity because uh, freight trains even today are ordered in a very specific way such that this batch of cars is going to one place, you know, we can efficiently drop them off on this one siding and and hook the train back up and keep going and, you know, whatever. So that was the goal there. It was a a railroad-themed event. And so we put together this railroad-themed game. And I think it was very well-received. And the version that's in the galleries, I believe, is hands-on. It's not an electric train, but it's still a push train. But it definitely teaches the same lesson.
0: As we discovered, I think you and I played it one day. We thought there was only one way to do it, but as it turns out, there's at least two. That's right. I think one of the <laughs> yeah one of
1: the one of the guests figured out. I I don't remember exactly what the trick was, but they figured out some trick where yeah through connecting certain cars, pulling them out, going back and forth, because the idea was of course railroad roads are trying to be as efficient, both in money and time as as possible. And the idea was who could line up the cars in the correct order with as few uh, back and fills and and movements as possible. And I think we thought that it was, you know, four or five movements and someone figured out how to do it in one less, I believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good for them. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, you know, and folks, that's the that's the thing you have to remember is we were very lucky to have David at the History Center for the time we had him because it, it, it's a certain amount of talent because you have to, as he said, you've got to make the game mean something that has to be set within a particular historic time frame, specific dynamics, explainable to a sixth grader in three minutes and playable by a family in in what, David, ten minutes? Ten to fifteen minutes. Yeah,
1: ten yeah, fifteen minutes was probably the most and what's Funny is that the people who have the least amount of patience are usually not the game players, but it's the the parents or whoever has to wait on the game.
0: For the, for the, <laughs> to... the next people in line, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the next people in line. Yeah, that's
0: right. No. So, and you know, it is it is not an easy thing to do. David's got half his life with experience. But if if any teachers or anyone out there, David, is, is trying to maybe come up with a way to include gaming in their educational systems, what kind of advice, you know, in a nutshell, would you would you give them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's now this is the this is the great climax and, and conclusion of, of of all of this. And this is what I was really thinking about prior to you inviting me here. I think like I said before, you should you should start with a brief. You should always, you know, you should lay out what am I trying to have the players experience. And then Don't be afraid to be somewhat creative and unconventional about how you arrive at that experience and try to build everything that's in your game around creating that experience and minimize as much as possible any elements that are strictly mechanical. For example, dice, can be very useful random number generators. Uh, You know, no argument there, they can be useful in games as as random number generators. And if you have a game that requires that, then then fine. But, you know, I've found that a lot of times when you're playing with dice, the dice are sort of a a mechanical distraction from the game a lot of the times. You know, we don't necessarily want players who are trying to simulate, you know, a certain activity thinking about, well, if I get a certain roll on the dice, then that means that my activity was successful. You know, it, it, it kind of distracts from the experience when they're just thinking about the mechanical elements. So try to minimize those mechanical elements as much as possible. I've found cards to be a good way to do that because you can you know, just pull a card over and you know, read what it says and, and there you go. And trading is often a good me- mechanic, like I mentioned with the deerskin trade game, if you have perhaps a, some sort of judgment that can be made prior to the the reveal of an answer. And what I'm thinking of there is, let's say you were playing a game where the students were shooting cannons or something, and you say, okay, before we measure the distance, you have to guess the distance, you know? So kind of create these things that are not mechanical, but are more closely linked to the experiences you're trying to build.
0: Very, very good. So is there anything you wanted to say that we haven't yet covered? Mm, Let me think about it. Oh, yes. Okay, here
1: we go. Games may appear to be fictitious on their surface. And you may wonder, you know, how is it that a, a game that perhaps allows things that didn't happen in history to happen? You know, for example, I personally, I love winning the Battle of Waterloo as the French, right? The French did not win the Battle of Waterloo. So you might ask, well, why is that useful as a history teaching tool? And to that, I would say it's all about creating that visceral experience that then can be transferred into the history lesson. Uh, Games themselves, I think, are tools that support a broader history lesson. They don't necessarily the whole beginning and end of knowledge on a topic, but they're personal experience with a topic that allows a level of engagement and participation that I think uh, encourages um, connection with a more traditional history lesson. And, and it, you know, this is what happened on, you know, at this time, that kind of lesson. So it's a, it's a c- communication tool as much of it is a teaching tool. Right.
0: No, that's, that's good. That's an important uh, point to make. And speaking of communication, we probably need to wrap this episode up uh, and end our communication here. David, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Then Again. It's been so good talking to you. You're very welcome, Glenn. Thank you for flattering me the whole time. I appreciate it. (laughs) It's all sincere, Uh, folks. That's it. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Keep following us on Facebook and uh, YouTube, and downloading these podcasts. And keep up with all of our events. You can find those on our website and Until we see you again, stay safe and take care.
2: Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THEN AGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of THEN AGAIN. Thanks, y'all.